Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I'm very happy to bring the conversation I had with Colleen Aaron. Colleen is an associate professor uh, and criminology and criminal justice program director at William Patterson University. Uh, is there. She has uh, also been teaching on criminal law, white collar crimes, criminology, inequality, and criminal justice. She's a member of the Crime and Justice Research Alliance of the American Society of Criminology and is very active in the research uh, on in criminology. She has a PhD in uh, sociology from City University of New York Graduate Center. And she is the author of three books, uh, the most recent, uh, Reform Nation, The First Step Act, and The Movement to End Mass Incarceration. And that is what we talk about in this conversation. We start by talking about the current landscape of mass incarceration, where we're at, and why things are the way they are. We talk about some of the differences between jail and prison. Talk about why we have these high numbers of, of incarceration and why people started caring. Uh, we talk about the First Step Act. Uh, it, was a, it was a big, big landmark bill that was passed a couple years ago. Um, and what's in it? We talked about why it has bipartisan support, which was kind of surprising. We talk about a little bit the 94 crime bill and some of the history of legislation on mass incarceration since uh, Lyndon Johnson. And then we talk about this importance of mainstreamization, as she calls it, of alerting people to the problem of mass incarceration. So we talk about millionaires and billionaires getting involved and, and getting behind it and other types of philanthropy. We talk about celebrities getting involved and using their platform. Uh, we talk about the impact of the First Step Act. It's been about five years now, and so we're trying to see, has it really done the things that it's aimed to do? Um, and when we, we talk about where does future legislation go on, on mass incarceration. Uh, again, super important topic. Um, everyone has been impacted at some point by the, the criminal justice system, whether it's a neighbor or a family member or a friend or maybe even yourself. And and uh, there's there's obviously many, many issues. And so thankfully, there are many good folks out there, uh, such as Colleen, working to try and uh, resolve some of these problems. Um, I have to say she was an absolute delight to, to talk to. She, she really has a big passion for this. She's obviously brilliant. And uh, I really, really enjoyed our, our conversation. It, it felt so, uh, you know, conversational, very fluid. And it was, uh, it was very, very lovely talking with her on uh, such an important topic. As always, you can find uh, this conversation, all other conversations at convergingdialogues.substack.com. Also on YouTube, so follow, subscribe, share widely, uh, donate, contribute. And uh, now I bring you Colleen Aaron. I'm here with Colleen Aaron. Colleen, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I'm uh, greatly looking forward to speaking with you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, we've we've been mutuals online for a while, and uh, I've I've wanted to uh, get your voice on the on the podcast, and so I'm I'm very happy to 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 have you here to talk about your book, which is called uh, Reform Nation: The First Step Act and the Movement to End Mass Incarceration. Obviously, it's a timely book. Uh, so before we get into all of it, uh, why don't you tell listeners who you are professionally, academically, and uh, what you're currently up to? Sure. Um, I am an associate professor at William Patterson University. Um, I previously spent uh, about six years as director of director of organizing at New Yorkers Against the Death Penalty. So I have a longstanding interest in social movements and criminal justice reform. 
Yeah, no, that's that's wonderful. Well, obviously your your years of experience shine through in the book. I felt the book was very uh, obviously it's very readable, but it's very tangible. It's not very uh, you know, sometimes these types of books get stuck in stats and numbers and data, and there's certainly that in there, but it's not only that. There's a nice human element to it, so it's it's uh, it's wonderful. Thank you. Yes, I was thinking it was perfect for converging dialogues because of the the nature of <laughs> the topic. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it is well. I mean, that's the thing that we'll get into. Obviously, is that the the, the much of the reform recently has been surprisingly pretty bipartisan. So that that's uh, that's very interesting. So, okay, so we can, one of the places I want to start here with this, I haven't talked about this on, on the podcast yet, so you'll, you'll be the first, you'll be the, you'll be the one to, 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 uh, to set the standard for anyone else that comes after you. So Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> so why don't you give us, uh, just kind of give us the lay of the land, what's the landscape of incarceration, um, you know, historically current data on that, um, this idea of mass incarceration, just kind of where we're at and kind of where we're come from. And we can just kind of, you know, get into it from there about um, some of the, the real big issues. I mean, some listeners may not know, they may have heard things, but not know how, how much of an issue it is. So maybe you can just give us the landscape of sorts. Sure. Well, this year marks a rather grim milestone. It's the 50th year anniversary, really, of the beginning of what we can consider mass incarceration in the United States. So approximately 1970, we had a full million fewer people who were incarcerated um, in 1970. Wow. Um, yes. Um, you know, often when uh, often liberal campaigns to say cut 50, uh, 50 percent of the people in prison seem like these pie in the sky ideas. But if you think about, well, a mere 50 years ago, we had a million fewer people. The claim becomes a little less. Um, mm -hmm. The scale seems less. So in 1970, we had about 200,000 people in prison um, at the peak of mass incarceration. We incarceration in 2008, we had a 1.3 million. Um, but beyond that, that's just federal and state prisons. We also currently mm -hmm. have about 550,000 people in jails, the vast majority of which are, um, are there for crimes for which they have not been convicted yet. Um, add to that, we also have another uh, four and change million people on probation and parole. So when you take all of that together, <laughs> um, it really is mass incarceration where about 70 million people currently have, um, have been uh, involved in the criminal justice system at some point in their life. And one in three people has uh, a criminal record. Could you, I mean, those, those numbers are absolutely depressing. Um, <laughs> could you just for listeners, uh, I didn't know this till a couple of years ago, actually, could you explain some of a little bit of the differences j just as a kind of a footnote between jail and prison? I think some people kind of get those still mixed up. Uh, could you explain that difference? Yeah. So absolutely. <laughs> well, I have, you know, criminal justice students who come in and still think that they're they're the same. So um, a, a prison are for are for uh, those who have been sentenced, actually sentenced and for more than a year uh, term. Jails are for people who are awaiting trial or who have sentences that are shorter than a year. Um, so it's it's used interchangeably, like if someone goes to jail, it could mean that they go to prison and vice versa. Yeah. Is this still, um, I, I could be wrong on this. Is it 
misdemeanors have a maximum of a year or to, or whatever it is, and then a felony starts at a year up to life. Is that still how it works? Um, some misdemeanors carry a little bit more than a year. It doesn't have to be a year exactly. Okay. Yes. Okay. Okay. So most of the time you're not going to see people with felonies in jail. They're usually after sentencing, they've been put to, to prison. And exactly. then there's like all of the like le- levels to that, right? Maximum security prison, et cetera, all these different levels to that within yes. prison, correct? Yes, absolutely. And that has to do with also the amount of time people have before they, they come home. Mm-hmm. Now, are you included in here, I can't remember if you said it or not, um, uh, yeah, you did, you, about people that are on uh, parole and then also people that are, um, when they come out of, of prison and or jail, I think they go to these different programs. Um, why am I drawing a blank on the programs? Reentry programs? Halfway yeah, houses, yes. Yeah, they're like reentry programs. Um mm-hmm. Is that also included in the numbers here? That includes that number of, of people that are associated still with the system in terms of parole, probation, things like that? Yeah. So the, the additional four million, four and change million people who are on probate, um, excuse me, parole are those who have been released after having served their sentence. Hmm. Okay. So let's go back to the initial figure. So, okay. So why did you, why did you start in 1970? Is, is that um, is there significance to that? Why not before, like in the 40s or 50s or 60s or things like that in the United States? Right. So um, if you look at 1970 and then start uh, looking at the legislation that's passed and the acceleration in the number of people that are incarcerated, it's widely accepted as the origin point for mass incarceration because it increased um, – just so astronomically compared to what was rather a stasis through mm. um, through the rest of U.S. history. Mm. So President uh, Nixon was in office in 1970. I think he was yes. the whole law and order kind of thing right. and all that stuff, right? Yes. Um, so again, you said it was two two hundred thousand people were incarcerated in two a little in a little shy of two hundred thousand people. Mm-hmm. And what was that climb like? I mean, you don't have to go through every, you know, every year, but kind of, I guess, decade by decade, you know, but when we get to 1980, 1990, 2000, what was the kind of trend lines of sorts of how this was increasing, at least by decade or, or however way you want to do it by year or by a couple of years? How, how, how big were these jumps, you know, that we were seeing? Uh, well, it has, it increased 500% since, um, since 1970. So the slope was rather steep and particularly accelerated um, after the 1994 crime bill under mm-hmm. Clinton, mm-hmm. Um, just because of the the sheer number of changes to sentencing that made sentencing not only harsher, but also for um, longer periods of time um, that that had uh, more more stringent sentences attached. Yeah, I'll I'll save kind of the I have specific questions about about the the ways in which we go about we have gone about doing that how we do it, um, but I'll I'll kind of save that for when we get to some of the other uh, content. So, okay, so it, pretty terrible, right? So it, it was it's it's at the current state. You know, we have over a million people incarcerated. We have you know people four what was it four four and a half billion, uh, million? Well, well more than a million people incarcerated because. 
to talk about incarceration, you'd have to talk about prisons and jails. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. it's it's closer to one point. Uh, so 1.2 million plus about 550,000. So 1.8 mm. million approximately people. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's a lot. That's a lot of people. Um, and, and yeah, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things with that. Um, obviously mental health comes into play here. There's a lot of people that have mental health issues that are, you know, wrongfully or whatever, what have you, that are there, all these, all the, and then to care for these people and, yeah, then just the whole subculture of it. So there's that's a lot of people, and then right, and then you have how it four and four and a half, or what is it with people that are connected with parole and probation? Four point five million. Um, four. Yes. Yeah. So uh, four hundred. So, four hundred fifty. Sorry, four point five million. Yes. Yeah. So we're talking about here, uh, you know, almost definitely over six million people uh, associated here, kind of directly. Yes. Now. <clears throat> Just just to kind of set us up for later in the conversation, typically, um, we don't have to get too political about it, but do people really give a shit about this or do they just not care where it's like, yes, we should be hard on people that do bad things, et cetera. When, when did, when, again, when was there a big, big shift of saying this is a problem mass incarceration issue. This is a problem. Like whether anything was done about it or not is, is, is another issue, but just the fact where people were kind of getting like hit with it with like, wow, there's too many people in prison, uh, in jail. Yes. I, I think that people really started to care when it started hitting home and wasn't this Mm. abstraction of people who are elsewhere outside of, outside of here. And, um, if you think about the, rate the uh, number of people who are in prison jumping 500% and then you have 70 million people with a record by 2008, you really saw the awakening to just what that meant on the ground in about the year. I placed the start of this at about the year 2000. Hmm. Um, And it's because then all of those people, you know, one in three Americans, the criminal record, um, they had families, they had friends. And so no one was really exempt from this phenomenon. It was an American phenomenon that touched, touched everybody. Um, and particularly the, the opioid crisis was cited by um, many of my interviewees as bringing this, this issue to kind of like white middle-class America that mm-hmm. anyone can get caught up in the criminal justice system and, um, they're not necessarily bad, bad people. And the war on drugs was a failure and didn't help the public health crisis at all. Hmm. So I think that's when it started to have more, more resonance as um, there were direct connections. Hmm. It seems like, yeah, it seems like this is also true for a lot of other things as well. But for here is when we, when we make it not so distant and we don't other people in, in this way and we see how it's connected or, you know, somebody's got a nephew or they got a cousin or they got somebody that's been in the system and knowing that, you know, it's very easy to get caught up in that people make mistakes or things happen. It sounds like then that's where it's okay. This is is an issue. You know, a lot of my participants talked about Brian Stevenson, um, 
and the role that he's played in the modern movement. And a, a concept that Brian Stevenson invokes when he's talking about mass incarceration is proximity. Mm-hmm. And that we have to make ourselves proximate to those who are experiencing this. But I think that for many, it was not that they had to make themselves proximate. It's that they all of a sudden became proximate and the issue yeah. was forced upon them. So mm-hmm. yes, having that direct uh, connection, kind of like contact theory, um, mm-hmm, that you mm-hmm. you destigmatize the other just through sheer interaction with mm-hmm. with people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so tell us about the First Step Act, uh, FSA, as as well as well we can call it. Um, what, t- tell us about there was a you say in the book that there was a lot of. I mean, obviously, this is like any piece of legislation. It's not typically the final piece just comes out. There's a lot of other things that are like kind of are the on-ramp to that. So maybe yeah. just kind of walk us through <clears throat> when do we first see the kind of um, early beginnings of what would be the First Step Act with whatever other bills or legislation. Um, I guess kind of the major players in terms of congressmen and women. And then what are the basic features of the First Step Act? Well, the First Step Act was not um, something that appeared over a year. Um, it took approximately eight years and various legislative uh, influences. So we can find the Smarter Sentencing Act uh, contributed provisions to the First Step Act. The Sentencing Reform and Corrections Act was also uh, a progenitor of the First Step Act. And the Dignity Act was also pieces of it, provisions of it were rolled up into this. Um, And major players on the left and the right were Senators Durbin, Senators Grassley, um, were really key in in, in bringing this forward at that at that moment of providing a bi- bipartisan type of veneer to it. Um, the provisions of the First Step Act. So first of all, it's the five year anniversary of the First Step Act, which is coming up. That's and, wild. Oh my yeah. gosh. How's it been five years already? Oh and gosh. I think that at I feel the like time, that was just signed yesterday. I mean it's so weird. <laughs> time right uh (laughs) so yes it it does it does feel like that i think at the time you know it it seemed like it was this um low-hanging fruit kind of uh bill um and now now i wonder if it could even be passed Mm. because the well i'm sorry i was gonna say i wanted to just make a a a kind of uh an uh reminder here for listeners Senator Grassley, Republican, R after his name, from Iowa, one of the oldest senators. Dick Durbin, senator from Illinois, Democrat, D after his name, also an older senator. It's not missed on me that these two, you know, old white guys are the one pushing this. But I think that's important because those are people that get like kind of unanimous respect, right? They're not extremists. They've been around forever. And it's almost like right. if these two are working together on this, you know, it's going to happen. I mean, who God knows how many committees they're on in the Senate. Like, you know what I mean? Like it just, it was, it, you know, the way the Senate works is a kind of um, an old boys club, if you will. I mean, there's a, there's a hierarchy to it for sure. And they've been around forever. Do, do you think that that's, that's a, a big, a big piece of what was like, okay, here we are. Let's let's. This is going to happen, kind of thing. Oh, absolutely. I think that you know, um, um, 
David Dagan and Stephen Tellis, um, who wrote Prison Break, a book about conservative criminal justice reform, talk about mm-hmm. identity vouching, mm-hmm. that you need to have the bona fides mm-hmm, when you mm-hmm. get up in front of a certain um, group of people who are looking for some, some type of tribal signal, that it's mm-hmm. okay to mm-hmm. buy into something. And I think that both of them did, um, especially in the case of Republicans, identity vouching that this uh, criminal justice reform bill was acceptable to to jump mm. onto. And so, yes, mm-hmm. I think that that provided like a shield for them versus like if AOC had tried to get on it or, or yeah, there's no, yeah, there's AOC no and Ted Cruz, although Ted I think Cruz. they have tried to work together on things, but uh, yeah, it, that would, it's be, a little yeah, bit that would have been quite the pairing for criminal justice reform. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would. Yes, it would. I don't know what a bill with AOC and Ted Cruz could possibly look like, but <laughs> that's the analogy. Right, 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 right. So sorry, I interrupted you. So you were going to get to some of the basic principles and, and features. Yes. <laughs> um, so uh, some of the basic, the, the, the two main strands of reform that were in First Step Act were, first of all, um, sentencing reform and then prison reform, corrections reform. So on the prison reform side, um, it in- implemented a new risk um, and needs assessment system called Pattern, which was enormously controversial for um, reasons we can get into about the factors that were included in the algorithmic assessment of whether someone was high risk, medium risk, or or low risk. Um so- could you could you talk about so kind of with each of these things here because that might be helpful. How was it so before this that was saying okay this is what needs to be fixed and here's how we're going to fix it and then explain kind of this. So in this example, this kind of uh, assessment level. So what was the problem they were trying to fix with this, and what was the what was the why was this the way in which they thought was was better and what was the controversy on it. I think that there's always um, a tension with with the debate about algorithmic risk assessment. Um, is it less biased than a human in making a determination about about risk? Um, and so, from the left leaning perspective, the debate about pattern was that it had some type of uh, racial bias baked into it. Um, that the factors that they were measuring. Um, would disproportionately affect those those of color who were in the federal um, system. Um, but the counter argument is that, well, that may be the case, that there are some factors that um, would, would mean that um, people of color are disproportionately put in the higher risk category. But is that more biased than a human would be given the same type of a record? Right. So all of these right. things are meant to correct the problem of perceived bias in the system in deciding who is high risk. And the problem that they're really trying to get at is the problem of recidivism. You know, if we implement this, um, the statute, how likely is it that we're going to uh, have a a backlash when the people that we let go of uh, earlier in their sentence um, uh, recidivate and then we lose credibility? Well, especially if you're looking at different types of risk factors, right? So if you're looking at uh, dynamic risk factors, that's going to be a lot different than static risk factors. So for listeners, static risk factors are things that are kind of uh, true or kind of pervasive with the individual. Um, So if they're chronically homeless, that might be a static one. But dynamic or or they have a mental illness, that might be a, a static risk factor. But dynamic ones... 
um, could be more things that are changeable or in flux. And so obviously I think it's right to be concerned about, you know, we know that in the criminal justice system, it is disproportionate against people of color. That's a, that's a pretty big fact, but, but you still have to assess risk factors, but looking at some of the ways in which systems haven't been the best for certain groups of people for a while, I could understand the worry. I could understand the worry, but there are pros and cons to using an algorithm or, and there are pros and cons to using humans. I mean, humans can do risk assessments, um, good ones, but it is, um, there, there are biases and there are blind spots, um, for, for different things that can, you know, be, be at the detriment of people. So I think that that is a tricky, I can, I can see why that's a tricky thing to correct. Yes. And the, the pattern had um, tried, they tried to balance um, static and dynamic factors in the, in the assessment. But of course, all of them were critiqued. There was a lot of um, opacity as to who was going to be designing this tool, mm-hmm. how it was going to be rolled out. And it was very difficult um, to get information about, about the tool um, until its release. Mm. So, okay, so, so this is kind of, there, there's, there's issues with, you know, corrections. So, so you talk so about prison, some of this controversy here. So what, what's the, how did it get, what was the compromise? How did they get it in the Senate, in the House? What was the compromise? How did they get to? Right. I think that um, it's, it's important for us to talk about the, the other pieces of it that were in the, the, what was in the bill. So besides the risk and needs assessment, they also then provided programming based on the level of risk. Mm -hmm. And if um, individuals took 30 days of um, programming to reduce their risk, they would be given 10 days of earned time credit, which then if it added up to the amount of time remaining on their sentence could be released, could have pre-release, be in pre-release custody outside of, outside of prison. other really good changes were that people had to be moved closer in closer proximity to their loved ones. They were given more teleconferencing time. Um, women were no longer could no longer be shackled in federal prison in postpartum. Um, and then the important piece in sentencing was that it did a few things. It um, raised safety valves. It expanded safety valve provisions um, before mandatory minimum. A mandatory minimum would be triggered. Um, it lowered some mandatory minimums for um, drug sentences, and it also made an Obama era bill, the Fair Sentencing Act, which, um, if you remember, every, I feel like everyone knows the hundred to one crack cocaine disparity that uh, for every gram of um, mm-hmm. Cocaine would be sentenced or every gram of um, crack is sentenced at 100 times the rate of that of cocaine. So Obama reduced that to 18 to 1, but it was not retroactive. So um, the First Step Act made it retroactive. Um, It also ended um, very, very severe stacking charges for possessing a gun during the course of uh, a crime. Um, So those were the, the major provisions of the bill. So what about on the, I think maybe you mentioned some of it there, but what about the the sentencing pieces of it? What, could you talk a little bit more specifically about the the sentencing itself? What was the problem with sentencing, and then how did it try to kind of you know uh, rectify that or try to correct for it? Well, it was a big mea culpa <laughs> uh, for all of the the decades 
50 decades of federal, of harsh federal sentencing, um, particularly as it pertained to, to drugs. And so the problem was, you know, in the 1980s, there was this extraordinary um, proliferation in harsh drug laws um, and harsher sentencing around it. So it was it was trying to attack that. So it uh, the expansion of safety valve, the raising of safety valves, um, made sure that mandatory minimums would not be triggered or there was there was a way for uh, judges to have more discretion around mandatory minimums. Also, um, it lowered the sentence for some drug offenses from life without parole as a mandatory minimum to 25 to life. Mm. Um, and so by, by really attacking mandatory minimums and mitigating them um, and increasing the threshold before one would be triggered, that's how it really uh, affected sentencing. Oh, and lastly, it um, expanded compassion uh, clemency for issues of compassionate release. So if someone were dying in prison, mm, mm, uh, it wouldn't be so damn difficult because mm. something like 96% of people were, uh, sorry, 94% of people are denied compassionate clemency it, mm. it, when they, when they try to get it. So, um, 4,500 people have been released, um, since then because mm. of the expansion of compassionate release. Mm. Now, uh, just as a as a question here, I don't think it was it was I didn't remember seeing it anywhere in the book or anything, but I'm just gonna just bring it up here. There there was nothing they didn't tackle anything here about the death penalty or anything like that in this in this bill. No, the death penalty yeah, yeah, wasn't yeah. touched. No. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a uh, well, that's Florida. A, that's another. That's a. That's another. But right, Florida just expanded the death penalty. I know. I, I saw for yeah, child yeah. child rapists. Um, yeah. 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 So uh, yeah. whether or not that's going to be a constitutional challenge, I, I hope it yeah. will be because we abolished the death penalty for rape because of mm -hmm. the way it was inflicted mm -hmm. in racially biased manner. And um, I, you know, I don't have expertise in child psychology, but I can imagine all of the problems as far as reliability yeah. Yeah. when it comes to yeah. witnesses. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's uh yeah, that's a that's a tricky one. Uh, I know, I know, I know. A lot of states have 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 banned it, um, or not a lot, but a handful of states have banned the death penalty in, in certain states. So I don't know if if uh, up your way they've banned it. And in Maryland, they've banned it. They banned it in twenty twelve, yes. I believe. Yes, uh, New York, New Jersey have have banned the death penalty. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so so let's talk about the bipartisan aspect of this. So we already mentioned Senators uh, Durbin and. Um, Grassley, uh, were there in the book you had, you said it's uh, 15 Democrats, 16 Republicans, one independent. Is this right? Yes. That's, um, pretty wild to have that kind of bipartisanship with, uh, with president Trump as the, uh, the, the man in the oval office. So, so remember this is not a, an Obama era or a Clinton yeah. or a Bush era, uh, bill. This is this crazy rare, you know, lightning strikes twice kind of bipartisanship in the Trump administration. Um, and again, it wasn't like two Republican senators or two Democratic senators. I mean, that's, you know, there's, there's a good amount. What's the story there? I guess just in terms of voting and like, how did, how did they, you know, kind of was like to my point earlier, was it the fact that you had these two older guys from each party kind of leading the charge and saying like, this is okay. We're okay with this. Let's get it done. Was it, you know, they wanted, um, but what was the kind of motivation to get to be so bipartisan? 
Well, I think it's important to note that um, mass incarceration was always a bipartisan creation. Um, like if you go back and look at what Biden was saying or Hillary Clinton or Bill Clinton um, were saying in the 1990s, the language, you know, um, was pretty horrific. It was about predators and yeah. uh, they were very much behind this lock, lock them up ethos and later had to kind of retract a bit. Um, Biden called what he said in support of the 1994 crime bill a mistake. Um, so it's it's not as if like bipartisanship flowering uh, for criminal justice reform is out of character for hmm. uh, the history of the criminal justice reform movement broadly because it, bipartisanship created it. Bipartisanship looks like it's poised to at least affect it in um, in a way that's somewhat decarceratory and ameliorative. I think that um, Republicans have actually more of an ability to um, to move forward on criminal justice reform because they're perceived as having more um, credibility when it comes to acting in a in a way that. Um, would be considered like uh, strong on crime, smart on crime. Um, and so the way in which it became bipartisan was largely, the book really talks about this, the behind the scenes story about how uh, those in the coalition for criminal justice reform um, from President Trump's advisors who were in philanthropy and who were very motivated mm. by criminal justice reform to Jared Kushner, his you know son-in-law whose father was incarcerated, um, mm to the nonprofits, the, NG, the big NGOs who were lobbied, like the ACLU who were lobbying Trump, celebrities who were lobbying Trump, businesses that were like the Second Chance Business Coalition, Jamie Dimon and all these, they were all putting their pressure. And so I think that locating the bipartisanship just within the, pol the political sphere is missing out on the, the wider story of how this was a lot of institutional actors, but outside of the House and the Senate. Hmm. Hmm. I just, on the, on the, I don't want to <laughs> open this can of worms, but it, I understand that people have this kind of, uh, different retrospective on the 94 crime bill. Mm -mm. <sighs> I mean, both you and I were alive in 94 and, um, I mean, in the early 90s, gang violence, especially on the West Coast and a little bit in, uh, in, in New York City as well, is in, in different, different cities that are up and down the, the coast, were really tough. I mean, it was really, really tough. I mean, the, this is like kind of that old kind of thing of like the Bloods and the Crips and things like that, like big, 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 big organized gangs. And it, it was pretty bad. I mean, gang violence was pretty bad. And I, if I, again, I could be wrong on this, but I, I think a lot of that, um, you know, when people were having, uh, when there was lots of crime, you know, killings and stabbings and kidnappings and, you know, carjackings, things like that, people wanted something. They didn't, they, they wanted to feel safe. They wanted to go into a city. They wanted to feel safe. And I think a lot of that was pushed for this, um, uh, this bill in 94, and it, it just feels like this kind of, um, what do they call it? Uh, 
um, revisionist history of sorts. Like if, if we had those kinds of issues today, I wonder if people would be so you know, hospitable towards all these things. And yet we're having, look, there is obviously a way and we should treat people as humans, et cetera. There's obviously a way to do this in a non-punitive way. And obviously the crime bill of 94 was, sounds like a, a lot of reaction to the, to the early nineties kind of crime and stuff. But I mean, it was pretty bad. I mean, there was a, a call for things to get done and this yeah. whole, like, let's, let's just be, make it easier for people. <laughs> let's reduce sentencing. Let's make, I mean, no one would have been on board for that. I mean, I, I know, I know on the left, I know, I know other, other folks, you know, that's another, another thing that people get to beat up, you know, Bill Clinton for and like, oh, he's terrible. And people beat up Joe Biden for being, <laughs> you know, a, a hypocrite on this and, and I, and I get, I hear that. And I mean, I don't, I don't think it was a great bill. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, you know, kind of going on board for this, but I do think contextually though, like, yeah, I mean, there, there was people that were on all sides of this that were calling for this. I mean, what, what do you think about how we kind of remember this now, 30 years later, you know? Well, I think that you raise a good point, which is that, you know, we have this, um, this feeling that we've morally evolved since uh, the past, but if we were to be put into that situation in those days, how would we react? I think we can see um, that because the reaction uh, in the second half of 2020 was pretty, pretty fierce uh, when the homicide rate went up dramatically uh, year to year in the uh, during the pandemic, and there was a call for more law and order that we haven't, like, that's a very natural response. But, um, but that's, but that's not, but that's not what Steven Pinker told me, Colleen, from the Better Angels. He told <laughs> us Angels, that, yes, that yes. violence has been going down. You know, he, that's not <laughs> what he told me. He, we all read that book. We, we yes, said violence yes. well, is going down. He's right. Violence is going down. <laughs> and I actually, I abide by his, his idea of a, a, kind of like Supreme Court evolving standards of decency. Uh-huh. I do think that, that yes, that's the direction we're going. And it's proven with crime crime stats that we are still in a period of historic lows. The crime rate has been halved since 1992, even considering the the recent uptick in in homicides. But isn't isn't the counter that it was just so fucking high for a long time? When you look at late 60s, definitely in the 70s, right? That's when all the serial killers were going apart. Like, and even until the 80s and early 90s, like. It was so high. Like, yeah, sure, it's going down. We've halved it, but it was too crazy. It was too high. Isn't that not a fair comparison? Or what, what do you say to that claim? That's not my position. I'm just that's kind of the counter people make. That that, that the homicide, that the crime rate was so high that yeah, that now that we've cut it, it's still not a great number. But even though we're going the, the right direction, it's still you know not great. That's the argument. I don't think it's a good one, but that's the argument people make. Um, well, the crime rate now is uh, lower than it was in the 1970s before mass incarceration started. Mm. Um, I think there's a few things. One is to come to the point about the uh, 1994 crime bill. I think that crime, and this is where the left gets it wrong, in my opinion. Um, the Uh-oh. left. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to be at so, the left. I'm, going, I, I'm an equal opportunity <laughs> criticizing the left and the, the right on this. But where the left really, and you saw this happen. So the left had no answer 
in 2020 to the rise in crime. They were like, it's not happening. Don't don't look just expecting people to just deny their eyes. Right. Um, That sounds familiar. Sounds like what we do with immigration nowadays. (laughs) So, yeah. um, Just pretend that something doesn't exist instead. Like the same thing with immigration. Um, Mm hmm. Obviously, there there is an issue. You have to acknowledge that there is an issue. Now, what you do with that, yeah, you can then you can then proceed to give your point of view. But if you're not acknowledging that basic reality, then you yes. can't proceed to any kind of policy totally solution. And yes. and that and that was the problem with the left um, post 2020 <clears throat> because they just were yeah. they had no playbook to go by, and so very human emotions about mm-hmm. harm and fear they. Mm-hmm. They ignored, but I think that crime is one of those issues that is a very emotional issue. Um, mm. And so the reaction in 1994, it was understandable that when you had the homicide rate double what it is now, and you had carjackings and you had theft double mm-hmm. what it is now, that um, there would be a, some type of human response. We have to do something. Let's making everything harsher. Um, Increasing sentences seems to be rational because why would people do something mm-hmm. if there's this, uh, you know, deterrent? Yeah. Um, the problem yeah. is that that that's not that's not what works to actually fix the problem of violent crime, and that's where I think the retrospective should be. Maybe if I had to give my my assessment, is that it was the wrong take on a problem that was still a very real problem. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And so and so incarceration actually does very little to decrease the crime rate. What really works um, again and again in, in empirical research is like hotspot policing, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, is is not something that um, is maybe popular to say, but it, it's been one of the most effective, effective things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so in the in the book it's, it's interesting you can you don't have to get all into the details here but you have this this piece of <clears throat> talking about sort of the history of uh legislation you start in 68 with LBJ with uh omnibus crime control and safe streets bill Reagan in 84 had the comprehensive crime control act uh and then in 86 and 88 Reagan had the anti drug abuse acts 94 the bill we've been talking about under Bill Clinton um, the Prison Legi- uh, Litigation Reform Act, excuse me, in '96 uh, by Clinton. Uh, Bush in '03 had the Prison Rape Elimination Act. Bush in '08 had the Second Chance Act. I think you mentioned that earlier. And then Obama had the Fair Sentencing Act, which you also uh, mentioned in 2010. So there's I, what what is what is all this telling us? What is this saying since 1968? <laughs> since since good old LBJ, <laughs> up until now, where we get to the FSA in in 20, when was this? 27. When is past 2018? 2018. Yes, I what, think it's, what, a, what, it's a, What's the history of this? What's the kind of progression here from all of these acts? I think it's a story of um, the millennium being the the turning point. And LBJ being kind of like the um, the initiator or the, the you know 1970 approximately being the, the starting point of this, mm-hmm. that the the federal government um, and presidents were were very involved in ramping up the carceral apparatus, and what did that look like? It looked like incentivizing the carceral state by providing money for more prisons, um, by providing more money for 
law enforcement um, by increasing sentencing, by making sentencing harsher. So in the 1980s, you have um, the elimination, for example, of federal parole. You have mandatory minimums. Um, you have it more difficult for people who have serious mental illness to plead um have an insanity plea. Um, mm -hmm. 1994, you have expansion of the federal death penalty. You have three strikes and you're out. Um, and then the story of the 2000s approximately, like we were saying at the beginning of this conversation, like when did people begin to feel it? All of a sudden in 2000, you see this shift. So all of that buildup uh, federally. Um, and then George W. Bush starts talking in very uh, Christian terms about redemption and second chances um, mm. and providing some of the really mo more powerful language about why and how we should be um, revising our prison uh, systems to, to be more compassionate and help people back on their feet. And um, while Second Chance Act didn't do much to reduce uh, incarceration, then we see in with Obama and fair sentencing, uh, the Fair Sentencing Act, it does. So it reduces the 100 to 1 crack cocaine disparity to 18 to 1. And then the First Step Act builds upon upon that momentum um, and and does even more to curtail and, and like I said, is an apologia about mandatory sentencing. Let me ask a question here <clears throat> when I'm, I'm, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking about how you're saying this. If I hear, if I listen to some of my libertarian friends, if I listen to some of my conservative friends, they're going to say more often than not, well, this is a state's issue. I mean, each state's got to figure out what they want to do and let's just kick it to them and that's it. In all of these scenarios, it sounds like there's a, a, a federal and a state's kind of, uh, kind of cooperation here. Could you emphasize maybe, if you, if, you, if, you, if you think so, why at the federal level this is really important to set these types of rules and regulations for things federally as opposed to, not, well, not in opposed to the states, but in conjunction with states, uh, uh, with cooperating with states, but why the federal aspect of it is so critical? The federal aspect is really critical because it kind of sets the the tone. It's it's very symbolic when it happens at the federal level. But absolutely, um, only two hundred thousand of the one point two million people who are in prison are in federal prison. So it it is um, a symbolic gesture. But federal federal changes often influence things like uh, incentives that are then provided to the states. But the way in which even the federal um, legislation around the First Step Act came together, you can find it then that model being replicated in other states. And so, for example, Florida um, tried to take on its own version of the First Step Act following the passage of the First Step Act. So it gives it that that platform, that megaphone um, to to set set the tone for the states. And if, if it's happening at the federal level that there's a bipartisan coalition, it makes it easier for state actors to claim that they're acting um, in line with their party. Hmm. In the book, you talk about this thing called mainstreamization. Um, and there's a whole uh, process. I think you have a, you have a, um, a graph in Handy. here where it's, 
collective acknowledgement, uh, resonant stories, resource growth, action, and amplification, and then, yeah, expansion and mainstreamization. Why is that, and how we mainstream this, uh, you know, criminal justice reform, why is that important for getting these things passed? Because obviously there's of sorts, I guess, the the, the nuts and bolts of it with, you know, policy and, and bills and all these things. But as, you know, we'll talk about in a minute, there was a push from all these other group outside groups, um, so, you know, philanthropy, billionaires, um, celebrities. There's all these campaigns. There's all this stuff. And I, I like that you look at the kind of whole gestalt of it because it's showing that these things, when they impact us, I, I, would, I would imagine, again, different. But a similar thing needs to happen with um, mental health. I think the similar thing has to happen with opioids. And, mm-hmm. and I think there's pieces of that moving. But I think that there's a, a sort of um, this collective aspect gives it something where this impacts everybody. Mm-hmm. More than just politicians are involved and need to be involved. Um, and, and it really just is a way in which um, you know, of the people, by the people are really trying to, uh, be active in how they, they, they try and fix problems at a federal level, not just a local or state level. So talk about this kind of mainstreamization, why that's kind of important for this too. Uh, well, it's very important because in the U S our system is very, our criminal justice system is highly, um, impacted by public opinion and public opinion can change very quickly. Uh, This is different than in Europe, which is a little bit more inoculated. They can make decisions about criminal justice policy that then um, can stay and the public doesn't have as big a, big a say in it because, you know, judges aren't elected, for example. And um, so, so it's enormously important because it has to be a mass movement. Um, Criminal justice reform has to take place at not only the state level, but um, at the federal level, and every state has a slightly different system. So if you're not getting everybody on board and there is some type of high-profile crime that happens or there's an uptick yeah. in crime like we saw that happens, if you don't have the populace on board, you're going to see a regression. So mainstreamization is is very important because people have to feel like they are um, – that this is a de-risked kind of topic. Um, if you think about gay marriage, for instance, yeah, like yeah. I was born in 82 and I feel like, you know, even in teenage years, like gay marriage was still something you debated and yeah. is yeah. past, is past, right. I feel like societally is past debate at this point that it's just been, um, Accepted. I think all of the research on public opinion bears that out. So once you get the sense that something's been derisked, that um, that there is a ubiquity to to what's being said, that it's being adopted by the culture, then it, it becomes easier to um, have public opinion inoculated from these wild swings in in opinion if something starts to to go wrong. Hmm. How? So let's talk about a little bit. So you, you give a chapter for kind of. Each of these kind of groups of sorts. Um, so we, we can take them in, in, in order. So you, you, you talk about billionaires and, and philanthropy and stuff. So it's one of those things where, look, we live in a capitalist society and money's what makes the world go round. 
you know, and, and unfortunately that's, that's the reality. How, I mean, look, you can get a bunch of influencers and people on TikTok and people on, you know, Instagram and, you know, some popular famous people, you know, like that's great. But at the end of the day, you need money and you need, you need not only money, you need powerful people with money that are pushing this, um, and pushing it, uh, in the right ways. So what's the incentive, I guess, for millionaires and billionaires really, uh, and you can name some of them that to get involved with this, like, why would they get it? What's the incentive for them? They have money. They don't need to do this. Why are they going to, you know, stick their neck out for, um, people in the criminal justice system, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how, how, what was the incentive for them? And, and maybe you can talk about the reform alliance as well. Sure. Um, well, the first, the first thing I just like to say in regards to like this, what you said about, we have to admit that that's, that's what happens and we need people with, with money. And I think there's a kind of, uh, sentiment that that taints, that taints the, the purity of the movement. But in fact, if you look at the most radical, uh, nonprofit organizations that are in this, like the abolitionist types, if you look at who's funding them, still there's like Tides Foundation. You go, you go, <laughs> you dig deep enough into the finances and there's a billionaire yeah, behind you need, it. You need, you need money. You need money. You need money. That's how it goes. I mean, that's the reality. I mean, I mean, not all the time, but many times, often enough, that's how it is. And another whole conversation is like the nonprofit, the proliferation of nonprofits around mm-hmm. this 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 uh, issue. But so why why are billionaires getting involved? Um, well, they're they're differentially motivated. I think that many of the billionaires in this this era, which I agree with the language of philanthrocapitalism, um, which was founded, which was not founded, which was begun like in the 1990s, the idea that. Um, philanthropists who are mostly entrepreneurial, who are problem solvers in finance, that they are better equipped than vast government bureaucracies that take forever to process a paper. Um, They're more equipped to handle the problems that are confronting society. This ethos uh, very much was found in the criminal justice reform movement. So although some of them were differentially motivated, I think that that was a common sentiment, that we have this huge problem of 70 million people with a criminal record. So, um, government's not fixing it. Uh, the dump. So how do we fix it? Like, um, and in addition to that, many felt personally moved by some aspect of, uh, the criminal justice system. So for example, um, galaxy gives who was one of the big funders is one of the big funders in criminal justice reform. Michael Novogratz, who was involved in cryptocurrencies made his billions there. He was very moved by hearing about how broken the criminal justice system was from his daughter, who was doing an internship, I believe, at Bronx Defenders. Um, Dan Loeb uh, got into it because he overheard Cory Booker at the American Enterprise Institute talking about <laughs> how uh, one in two black men will have a, a criminal record by the time they're they're 24. Mm. Um, you know, Doug Deason, who's the funder for the on the right, one of the Trump. Uh, funders. He was motivated because he himself got into hot water as a teenager. He broke into a friend's house and uh, was being brought up on charges. And because he was so son of a billionaire, he got off. You know, his dad pulled some strings, his mom pulled some strings. And he said that that made me realize that this was not a quality of opportunity for everybody. I was being treated differently. Um, so there's that personal kind of connection. Uh, and then the the belief that 
I can, I have the ability because of my experience as a macro trader, because of my experience mm. as a hedge fund person to see, to see the field in a way that is uh, more, per, more perspicacious than these people on the ground. It's interesting. I, I think that it's such a, I remember hearing stories, like I think the biggest story I remember hearing is the whole thing with Meek Mill, the yes. the, the, the rapper from Philadelphia. I mean, his story was pretty fucked up. I mean, it was, it was pretty terrible. I mean, even by, <laughs> even the hardest liner of like, you know, people that want, I mean, it was just awful. It was just terrible. Right. Um, and it was interesting how, you know, I think he used his influence, but I think he used it not, he kind of became like a, uh, I don't want to say an icon, but like a, like a poster child of sorts, unfortunately, for how this is terrible and yeah. really then pushed for how, how does this impact so many other people and people of color, but he really got like a bunch of billionaires together <laughs> yeah. to be like, this is seriously terrible, uh, you know, help me and help me fix this, not just for me. But for you know everybody else, which I think is my my, my impression is that his his motives are, I mean I don't think anybody's motives are entirely pure, yeah. but I think that they really were, like he really kind of like experienced it and was like okay like I'm I'm seeing other people experience this like this is terrible how let and and, he, and knowing the kind of billionaires getting involved, so I've always thought that story with the billionaires thing was really interesting. Right. Well, uh, Meek Mill was friends with Michael Rubin, who uh, own, owns the Philadelphia 76ers. And so um, Michael Rubin basically told him, don't worry, I'll get you out. And was was kind of um, agnostic, I think, about criminal justice and didn't believe what Meek was saying about the injustices and how harsh it was. And then all of a sudden his friend, you know, this famous rapper was embroiled in this crazy story uh, where he was being sent away uh, for popping a wheelie in Harlem. Um, and so, and so through that experience, I think both Michael Rubin felt motivated to bring his insight uh, mm. through Meek Mill, but then Meek Mill realized that, you know, the capital that, that Michael Rubin could could activate um, was enormously important. And so Michael Rubin, Meek Mill, they started um, connecting with um, some of the billionaires that are, that are in the book, like Michael Novogratz, like Dan Loeb, mm -hmm. um, like the Arnolds, mm -hmm. Robert Kraft, mm -hmm. Robert. Uh, so um, Clor yeah, I, I remember the I, Robert Kraft involvement. That, that also was yeah. like interesting to me as well. I was like, oh, wow, you know. Yeah. Um, and they, so the Reform Alliance was kind of to me this like, um, model exemplar of what was happening with very wealthy philanthropists getting into this, this movement because they, they bound together and created reform Alliance and it was comprised exclusively of billionaires. Jay-Z was there mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. Van Jones then served as this CEO, but it was this interesting bringing together of like celebrity and philanthropy. And um, they've been doing work around the reform Alliance around probation and parole specifically and um, infusing tens of millions of dollars into this space at the state level mm. and having, um, having success. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Colleen, I never thought I would be talking about Kim Kardashian on my podcast. <laughs> I am, <laughs> I am not, Life I am, is strange. <laughs> I am not, uh, I'm not going to say I'm a fan or I'm not a fan. I just don't really pay attention to her. Um, 
but you know, I mean, credit where credit's due. I mean, I think she used her platform and she used it really well. And like, I think she like legitimately, you know, cares about the issue. I don't think she was just for, you know, clout or something. Uh, Lisa Milano has her own thing. Obviously you mentioned Van Jones as well. Tell us about, I, I find that sometimes like celebrities can be mostly awful <laughs> with when they have things they promote because it feels like it's just another gross way of capitalizing on an issue to just get more famous or to make money or things like that. I really don't think that's what it was with Kim K. Uh, definitely not with Van Jones. He's, I mean, he's, I don't want to say he's a celebrity, but I mean, he's well known, I guess. But what's the, I guess the utility of celebrity kind of um, influence in, in these positive ways. Uh, are there any downsides or negative pieces to it? And, and maybe you can talk specifically about these folks that were connected with uh, criminal justice reform. What's the the kind of, I guess, pulse on this, you think, for, 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 for celebrities using their kind of uh, image? Well, there's there's something in uh, sociological literature called um, celebrity capital. And Theorists of celebrity capital talk about how it has these unique properties of fungibility that um, they can transform it into economic capital. They can raise money. They have political influence. um, They can operate in multiple different spaces because they have this attention. Like for them, attention is capital and that helps everyone else who's involved, say, politically. So I think that um, to the extent that celebrities like Kim Kardashian, can use their celebrity capital, one, to bring attention to it and therefore de-risk it for the general populace to make it something that's just in general discourse, but also to gain entry into spaces where you know, your average citizen can't. So Kim Kardashian, for instance, yeah. went to Trump, another celebrity, <laughs> uh, celebrities like schmoozing over criminal justice reform. But you know, to advocate for someone in prison named Alice Marie Johnson yeah. spending time for uh, spending life for a, a first time nonviolent drug charge mm-hmm. and succeeded in getting her clemency and yeah. furthermore persuading Trump to get on board with the First Step Act. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not just this symbolic gesturing that celebrities can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is that. And I think that they've been They've been, um, you know, attacked and criticized rightly for making it uh, a photo opportunity. Mm -hmm. But if you think about um, there was a study done of the impact of Oprah coming out for Obama Uh that estimated that she garnered him like another one million votes. So there's, I mean, there's she, like her or not. I mean, she, she certainly has influence. I mean, you she can't has influence. You can't yes. Yes. That. So you can <laughs> yes. transform this, you know, this, they're called influencers for mm-hmm. a reason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the downside of course is, you know, the common criticism is it waters down the issue. Yeah. How much can they really get into the politics of it? Mm-hmm. It may make it seem not serious. Mm-hmm. It may then be about self-promotion, but, um, uh, one, of the, one of the things Van Jones said that I think was uh, an apt comment about this is that if you're having a po- if you want a populist movement, you want to also bring on board popular people yeah, to help make fair. the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 I think it's I think it's fair. I mean, that's why, you know, I think that's 
I mean, it, I always felt it was very authentic, but I mean, I think that's why, you know, you know, Bernie Sanders and Killer Mike were always hanging out because I mean, it's, you know, I mean, Killer Mike's not that big, but I mean, he does have, you know, again, a, a reach within a certain demographic of, of folks that either listen to his music or, you know, down in, in Atlanta or, you know, certain, certain communities, you know, that <laughs> Bernie desperately needed. And they, you know, they he, Car- he was talking to Cardi B for a while. So that, that was, I think a low <laughs> moment for him, but um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very funny how, Sometimes people do this and it's it's like just legit pandering and everyone yes. knows it and sees it and it's like, oh gosh. But I do think that there are some moments where there is like this kind of um you know, odd couple kind of thing that happens. Um and and it works. And it and it kinda <laughs> it kinda works. And it's interesting and they can use it, uh, use their status and everything. I mean, again, <laughs> the influence and in numbers that Kim K has is pretty astounding. I mean, it's, you know, lover, hater, whatever, whatever, like, you know, she, she, she's taking that opportunistic, you know, train all the way, cashed in on it. Hey, good for her. Like, you know, whatever. But I think nice to see it used for something uh, purposeful. You know, again, lover, hater. I mean, I think that at the end of the day. Exactly. You know, if you have a platform. Yeah. Then- yeah. Yeah, and and yeah, she she even you know was studying under one of the uh, first step back proponents, uh, Jessica Jackson, to be a lawyer during mm-hmm, the course mm-hmm. of this. So I think there I think there was sincerity to it. Yeah, like yeah, she, yeah. she stayed behind the scenes for the entire time. Yeah, yeah, I I I, I totally I totally agree with that. <laughs> um, so I guess the the other thing here is is at the at the end of the day, it gets bipartisan support, which is wonderful. Um, what have we seen, I guess, you know, it's been five years. What have been the, uh, have we seen impact of this? Have we seen how this has helped? How, how, and if so, uh, how has it helped? Where have we seen it? Just Mm -hmm. kind of, I mean, five years on, what, what have, how effective has it been? What have we seen? Well, it's all indicators are that it has been effective again, if you're dealing with uh, the federal system being only 200,000 over out of 1.2 million, you're, you're dealing with a smaller scale, but it has released about 20, I'm sorry, um, 30,000 people through the use of earned time credits. Um, and it has reduced the sentences of those who were sentenced um, prior to the fair, fair sentencing act of, of 2010. So about 4,500 people had reduced sentences, another approximately 4,000, uh, 4,000 to 5,000 released because of compassionate, uh, the expansion of clemency. But I think importantly for like proof of concept about risk and needs assessment, and then programming around that is that, um, the recidivism rate for people released underneath under the first step act is, was only like 12 and a half percent versus those who are just released um, separately. And that is around 40, 42 percent. So yeah. it, it, it's been enormously effective so far. Yeah, no, that I mean, that's well, that's obviously what you want. If people work hard on this and they're trying to say, OK, how do we what's the impact here? So I think that that's great. So the last question I have for you is. You know, we, we talked a lot about the history here and all of these other things. Um, the United States has this very frustrating thing is, you know, they'll, they'll get like a major piece of legislation and they don't touch it for like 100 years or whatever. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> so 
ideally, like, you know, where, where, what are some, what are the areas that need to continue to have improvement in criminal justice system, in the criminal justice system? And where do you think we're, we're going and where do you think it's headed? I mean, if you, if you have something that's pretty bipartisan, you mentioned earlier somewhere in the conversation that, you know, would it get passed today, which is crazy to think about. Um, but yeah, where do you think the future is of this stuff? Both, you know, how do we continue to have you know, good laws that are made? And what are some of the other places that need to uh, need to continue to be uh, reformed and fixed? So I think that, first of all, the there was a lot of questioning about whether we would continue to have forward momentum in uh-huh. criminal justice reform because of 2020 and the backlash. Like I said, I don't think this year that criminal justice reform could be passed at the federal level. I think it still has a level of toxicity to it. Um, but but there is reason for optimism about it. Um, only 5% of Americans um, in 2022 said that criminal justice, uh, that crime was like their top issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and the number of people who say that they're afraid, kind of the classic ways of judging how people are actually affected by crime or how are you, how are you afraid of walking within a mile of your home? How much are you Mm. personally afraid of, of crime? That really hasn't changed, um, since 2000, the, the, the late two thousands. So although the language may have changed and there was a, there was a blip, um, in crime rate going up, it seems like in general, Americans are not prioritizing this. And, And in fact, the I suffer through the the Republican debates and I'll, I'll say I suffer through any presidential debate. It's like regardless of which party it is, but it was criminal yeah. justice was it's actually the like me. the seventh, <laughs> the seventh issue that was most discussed uh, well behind abortion, fentanyl, immigration, all of these other things. So it seems to be deprioritized and with demographic trends um, that are projected to not predict uh, higher rates of crime because of like a baby boom and that type of thing. I think that we can look for more political opportunities for criminal justice reform to flower with this new national coalition that's been formed and the money that's pouring in and the, the mainstreaming of, of the issue. Um, You know, I'm, I'm a libertarian. So personally, I think that the, the, um, what remains to be done in criminal justice reform is uh, a lot of decriminalization. Um, from my perspective, it's not not objective. Uh, it has to be uh, legalizing of drugs. So much of this is um, either directly or indirectly related to that. And mm-hmm. if we were to go back to 1914, we did not have this these these uh, laws about about drugs. Um, I think that at the state level. This is where all the battles will be taking place. I think we need to bring our sentencing more in line with Western Europe. Um, sentences that are not measured out in hundreds of like Methuselah type of years <laughs> um, to, to really balance between public safety, what's needed to deter, what's needed to keep people safe and what's overkill. And there's a lot of overkill. Um, I think that, you know, using social and social science and um, neurobiological science about patterns of behaving through the behavior through the life course and kind of predicting at what age people age out of crime can yeah. inform that. So reducing it and also just making prisons at the very basic level, making prisons 
more humane. I mean, if you look at the way the Scandinavian countries look like Ikea in their mm-hmm. prisons, you say like, you know, this maybe looks too three hots in a cot nice, but it's humanizing. And I think dehumanization is part of what got in, us into this. I think it's part of what makes offenders commit crimes to begin with, um, mm-hmm. not to excuse them, but yeah. it's, it should be part of our way out to, to humanize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I fully agree with you there. I mean, I think we have to really, we can't miss, miss the human. And, and even if people are doing the most grotesque crimes, there are reasons for that. And we need to be able to be more proactive and catch things better and, and find ways of, of rehabilitating people much, uh, much in improved ways, as opposed to just, you know, being very punitive and just all penalizing them for things. So I, I fully agree with you there. It's balancing the need for like human feelings of retribution mm-hmm. and deterrence mm-hmm. with um, proportionality. Like at yeah. what point does the scale tip to be dispro- the, where the punishment is disproportionate to to the mm-hmm. crime? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. The book is called Reform Nation, The First Step Act and the Movement to End Mass Incarceration. This is through uh, Stanford University Press. Um, any places you want to point people to, whether for yourself or your book or your work, any places in particular? Um, I think to go to Stanford because they have, they have the book there. Um, there's a discount if you use my last name and 20. Um, yeah. And that's it. That's fantastic. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I, I greatly appreciate you, uh, coming on and talking about an important issue and, and your, your great work. And, uh, again, You've now set the standard for any time I have a conversation about this topic. So uh, this is a this is a great standard that you set. So I'm much appreciative too for for your time and your energy. It was a it was a it was a great conversation. Well, the topic is evergreen, so you'll have more people on. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, all right. Thanks so much. Thank you.